Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. to the very first episode of Misconduct. I'm Eileen, and joining me is the lovely Colleen. Hello, Eileen. For our first case, we got a good one. Tonight, we're covering The Grim Sleeper. The Grim Sleeper was the moniker given to a serial killer active for over 20 years in South Los Angeles. The name was coined by a journalist that, and comes from the theory put forward by the LAPD that there is a 14-year break in his crimes. Today, we're going to look into how these crimes unfolded how they were solved, and what questions remain. Thank you for that intro. Um, (laughs) So we're in South Los Angeles, and Eileen and I thought it would be kind of important to go through a little bit of the history of South Los Angeles leading up to the 80s when this case starts, because a lot of how South Central became what it was plays a role into the outcome and the investigation of this case. Mm. So South Los Angeles is just kind of a regional term for 50 square mile piece of L.A. Um, and prior to the 19, the late 1940s, it was actually a predominantly white neighborhood. And this was by design because back then in where California didn't have as many like Jim Crow laws, mm-hmm. uh, they did have racism in how they... In their housing, basically, that cities were designed to have like black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, um, and home loans were only given to white people in certain neighborhoods, and then uh, black people who may otherwise qualify for those loans would be denied because no real reason. Yeah, just because you know people were trying to keep their neighbor white people were trying to keep their neighborhood white, basically. Right. So that changed though in the late forties when uh, Shelley versus Kramer went to the Supreme Court and a little bit of background on Shelley versus Kramer, that actually took place not in California, but in Missouri. Uh, A black family was given a home loan for a house in a white neighborhood in St. Louis and a white man who lived in the neighborhood sued and it went all the way to the Supreme Court for letting them for a, because the city allowed Mm -hmm. a black person to move in. So black family to move in. Wow. Which you have a lot of nerve. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, that's you know what you want your name in, to be in history. I mean, okay. Right. Uh, so once uh, the Supreme Court ruled that these race-based restrictive covenants were illegal, and it was no longer legal to deny people a home loan in a certain area based on their race, uh, the 
black neighborhood was a little bit to the north, it was actually overcrowded, so a lot of black families started to move into South L.A. The white people who lived there did not take very kindly to this change. Mm-hmm. And kind of the whole term, there goes the neighborhood, is kind of where it came from. this comes from. Um, and they, didn't, like I said, they did not take kindly to it. They uh, harassed uh, and would shoot out windows of like black families' homes, burn crosses on their lawn. Oh my gosh. Uh, reacted really poorly to that. And uh, it also led to what's kind of term, the term is called a white flight, which is basically when white people who have lived in a neighborhood for a long time feel that their neighborhood is quote changing. They'll leave the area. Kind of, they'll be like a mark. You can like look back in history and see when they left that area. Right. Like a massive basically. shift. Of a massive shift of like demographics. Right. So there was also a large manufacturing industry in the area. You're kind of near the ports down there in like San Pedro. Um, And there was a lot of manufacturing plants. A lot of like cars used to be built down there. So the people who lived in South L.A., they lived and they worked in South L.A. and they had decent middle class jobs Mm -hmm. in that area. That started to change in the 50s and the 60s when a lot of manufacturing left the area and then they have the white flight of businesses and people who've lived there for many years starting to leave the area but there is a point in history where you can kind of trace it back to the acceleration of the white flight out of south la Mm -hmm. and that was the watts riots in 1965 yeah and um just a brief background for those who may not know uh, the watts riots uh in california we all know what that is yeah right a brief background is a very big deal and you'll see why in a second a brief background of the Watts riots, uh, basically the racial tension reached a breaking point. Um, and the inciting incident was after two white policemen had a physical altercation with a black man they suspected of drunk driving. A crowd of people gathered and they were watching the arrest happen and they got understandably <laughs> angry by yet another incident of racially motivated abuse uh, by the police. So a riot broke out, and it was spurred on by the residents of Watts who were resentful after years of economic and political isolation and police discrimination. <clears throat> so uh, the riot actually grew to a 50-square-mile area of South Los Angeles. Oh, wow. um, it's huge. There was looting, torched buildings, beatings. Even snipers were uh, fired at policemen and firefighters. Oh, wow. It got very ugly. Um, the National Guard was called in to, quote-unquote, restore order eventually. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes that doesn't have the effect that they want it to have. It, it escalates tension. Right. Having, roll some tanks through is what they want yeah, to do. Yeah, rolling tra- tanks through the streets doesn't necessarily help things sometimes. Yeah, and I think it's a way to just scare everybody away. Right, yeah. yeah. We don't want to hear what you have to say. We don't want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> We're just going to scare you. You need to go home or else. Type yeah, of thing. you yeah. have military Yeah, coming in, which is... Uh, Still see that today. You do. Um, so the riots, actually, they lasted five days. Uh, there were 34 people killed. Wow. 1,000 injured, 4,000 people arrested, um, oh. and over $40 million worth of property damage uh, or, in 1965 dollars, 40 I, million. Yeah. Oh wow. It was the city's worst case of unrest to date, to that date, in uh, until the 1992 LA riots. Yeah, Rodney, Rodney King. King. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think this, you know, and like you said, you can trace it back. This ends up accelerating the white flight. And yeah. At that point, you know, mom and pop shops they you know pack up and go somewhere else. Mm. Um. And it it changes the community 
kind of permanently, I think, or it, the, the, those changes we still see today. Um, and, but those tension between the police and the community that, you know, existed before the Watts riots and has existed since then. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it plays a really big role in this case, and we'll go into it a lot more. Um, by the 1980s, uh, the community was, you know, really deeply affected by high unemployment rates. Uh, because, again, the manufacturing kind of had left that South L.A. area. Uh, High poverty, high crime in L.A. overall, but also in South L.A. Mm. And in the 80s, as you've seen in probably any number of TV shows and movies, there is a crack cocaine epidemic that hit that area pretty hard. Um, So the crime rate, including the murder rate, in LA was high at the time, but also high in South Central. Uh, young black women were being found dead, murdered mm-hmm. in South Central LA. And over a period of 25 years, it's estimated that 200 people went missing from South LA. Um, a lot of them were, you know, you file a missing persons report and they turn up mm-hmm. and then it's, you know, over and done with. Some of these women were never found and some of them and never accounted for. And then some of them, you know, ended up having died. And then many of them, you know, that haven't been accounted for are feared to be dead, you know? Right. Yeah. So the LAPD didn't really investigate a lot of these murders beyond taking, you know, their cursory reports. Sorry if you hear those sirens in the background. Yeah, we are <laughs> We're in, recording in the city. So. Yeah. Apologies. Um, apologies. Uh. So even if they did take their reports, they weren't taking them seriously. Yeah. A lot of times these women were being written off as, quote, victims of circumstance where police were treating them a certain way based on their age and race and where they lived. Mm -hmm. A lot of times women in this area who were found, you know, dead were perceived to be prostitutes or drug addicts. And it's there's a documented history of police treating prostitute or crimes involving prostitutes with maybe not as much sensitivity as they should, not investigating it as much as they should. Mm. Uh, There's a slang term that's used not just by the LAPD, but kind of in policing overall. And I say slang term, but it's awful in my opinion. Um, An NHI case, which means uh, no human involved. And that's used to describe cases (laughs) where a prostitute or drug addict was the victim of a crime probably makes them feel better about not investigating these things you know right. yeah i guess you can just say no human that's horrible that's <laughs> and, and i think that statement really sets the tone for the lapd community relationship like if you need a one sentence to sum it up right yeah right that's it right there that, you that's know? your like soundbite mm-hmm. it's it's really upsetting so i mean how are you supposed to call the police when this is how you're treated and this, right. your crime, the crimes that are committed against you and your community are investigated in this way. So yeah. And you're equated to not being human. Right. So the, by the eighties, the community suspected that some of these killings were related and were really upset that the LAPD didn't alert the community of a possible serial killer. Uh, Cause it's one of those things where it's like at best, these are related killings at worst. These are systematic serial killings that are being uninvestigated. Right? right. So I think that partially why the LAPD didn't alert the community is because they might not have known. Cause again, these crimes weren't really being properly and thoroughly investigated. Yeah. 
So the community's response to this police non-involvement was to create the Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders. Now, this was a community group that was created in the mid-'80s, and it was led by a woman named Margaret Prescott. Um, And they were concerned about the high number of murders that were just going unsolved. It was like, you know, so-and-so was murdered, and nothing's come... We have no progress in the investigation. Nothing's really happening. Right. So they had some demands that were uh, understandable, but they, were, they weren't very many demands. It seems like a very, you know... Yeah, just do your job, maybe. Please do your job, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they basically wanted the murders acknowledged by the LAPD, investigated by the LAPD, and investigated as possible serial murders, and basically they wanted help. It was basically a community organization that was created to ask for help. Right. right? So the LAPD was very reluctant to make any statements, and they did not take the Black Coalition fighting back uh, serial murders seriously at all. Which is super frustrating to me. They were treated as like a nuisance, basically. Yeah, and it's just so telling uh, that they didn't take them seriously and treated them as a nuisance. Um, police have always had a, you know, neighborhood watch, community policing programs, right. things like that. To, you know, and here you have a community who formed a coalition against a serial killer or what they could be a serial killer and they're brushed off right and how do you not take that seriously as not even as a police department but as a you know a person if i was the cop getting that like getting contacted so it's just you know it's very sad and it's frustrating but also makes sense you know given the history of the lapd and la so um, this will not make you any happier. When speaking to the LAPD, uh, the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders said, and this was not this was obviously not an official remark, this was an off-the-record remark, mm. that their response from a police officer was, I don't understand what you're concerned about. He's only killing hookers. That just tells a whole story right there. Again, yeah, you know? it's another you know, one-sentence story. <laughs> you can see why. I mean, people wonder, I swear, you can well, why was rioting, rioting happen and things like that, you know, but there you go. That's why, you know, people aren't being heard. They're not being policed. These people don't want to call the police because, A, they don't do anything. And why would you if that's the response you get? Right. You know, no such it's human. It's a very insensitive response. It is, yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter if they're, I don't care if they're just hookers. There's still murder happening. Mm-hmm. Investigate it. Yeah, definitely. That's, it's, that's going to be the theme of this case a lot is just like, just do your job. Yeah. Um, so... That did not deter the Black Coalition fighting back serial murders. Uh, They kept the pressure on the LAPD. And eventually, the LAPD made an announcement of the, quote, the mythical Southside Slayer. And this whole concept just fascinates me. Um, Mm -hmm. It was basically a catch-all term for one person who was supposedly responsible for many, if not all, of the murders. So we have all these people who are being found murdered, and it's like, well, it's a Southside Slayer, so... We're working on it. We'll let you know when we know something. Don't call us. We'll call you. Yeah, don't call us. We'll call you. Um, and they basically hoped that this would placate the Black Coalition fighting back serial murders concerns, and they're not going to get phone calls from Margaret Prescott and the people in the group, you know, demanding to know what's going on. Um, that, I don't think that it necessarily worked. I don't think anybody's concerns were placated, but it was sort of the LAPD line for a long time. Yeah. In the early 2000s, uh, LA ordered the massive backlog of DNA that they had 
uh, stored from just crimes of sitting in storage, mm-hmm. ordered massive tests to try and close some cold cases because at that point, you know, early 2000s, DNA testing has improved a lot. And hopefully we can make connections to cases, close some cases, because mm-hmm. the backlog in L.A. at that time, and still is, but was huge. Just a huge number of unsolved crimes. So in the early 2000s, they run some DNA, and they find that of the Southside Slayer killings, killings attributed to the Southside Slayer, yeah. there was not one serial killer. There were at least five. Wow. Yes. And uh, notably, uh, Chester Turner, he's sort of a well-known serial killer. He was apprehended, I think, in the mid to late 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, he's convicted of killing 15 women over a 10-year period. He would get into arguments with his girlfriend and storm out, and his girlfriend's thought he was just out for a drive or on a walk. He Blowing was actually killing people. Yeah. He would kill Blowing women. Some steam. <laughs> That's horrible. Yeah. Uh, and it's estimated that there are there were 55 victims of serial murders in South LA between 1984 and 2007. A lot of these victims were black women. Um, some of these victims are attributed to known serial killers, and then some of these victims are tied together just based on the crimes, and they mm-hmm. don't have a person who was responsible for them. Yeah. Interesting note, um, I talked to my parents a lot about... Uh, things that I investigate before, um, if they happened before I was born or yeah. if I was really young when it happened. And I asked my mom, I said, had you ever heard of the Southside Slayer? And she said, oh yeah, in LA in like the 80s. I don't think they ever caught that guy. So she had heard about it. Yeah. <laughs> and assumed that it was one guy and just never really like, you know, yeah, I used to be in the news. I don't think they ever caught him. And I was like, well, guess what? <laughs> it wasn't one guy. It was five. Right. So. And your mom, I know, followed oh. court. TV and all that I stuff. I grew up, very, she watched court TV all the time. Yeah, yeah, very closely. So, I mean, yeah. it just, again, kind of goes to show you where it's no coverage on this either. I mean, right. nothing. It, yeah, just the the coverage was very minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, Lack of interest by police. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, we've, we move on to the Grim Sleeper, right? So, some of these 55 victims were obviously the Grim Sleeper. Um, he was called this because... Police originally believed that there was a 14-year break in his crimes from the 80s to the early 2000s. Um, his existence at all was actually kept a secret and was uh, a breaking news story, basically. A woman who was a journalist named Christine Pelisek, she wrote for the LA Weekly. She gave him that name in 2008 because um, she basically found out that there was a secret task force that the LAPD had that was mm-hmm. working on trying to track down who was responsible for these murders. Right. She found out about it and wrote an expose. We'll go into that a little bit more later. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy read. The article's crazy. Um, it's very interesting. So we go back, we rewind a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Back to August 10th, 1985. And that is when the first known and confirmed Grim Sleeper victim, her name was Deborah Jackson, she was 29, where she was found in an alley and she had gunshot wounds to her chest. Now, she was one of 777 murders that year in L.A. And 77, that's a lot. Um, but out of curiosity, I, I wanted to see what the, the rates were just in that time. Oh, yeah. And it actually seemed to be pretty average for that time. I mean, I just feel like 777, it's a huge like number. like a lot. 
But in 86, there's 831. In 87, there was 812, you know, 736 in 88. Um, it didn't wow. really start dropping until the 2000s, where I feel like it's dropped drastically now, ranges from maybe three to 500 per year from 2000 to 2009. Oh, wow. So it's, um, yeah, it's crazy. It's a lot, but <laughs> seemed average for the time. Yeah, that's good to know. Because uh, se- when I read that, I was like, wow, 777. But yeah, like you said, it, it seemed to be about average for that decade. Um by 1988, the police had tied seven murders in South L.A. They tied them together because they had been committed with the same 25 caliber gun. So in 1988, they knew that there were seven murders that were con- committed with the same gun. So they were using ballistic testing. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, just some background on ballistic testing, just so, uh, you know, they, they knew it was the same gun, like the exact same gun, because they did the forensic uh, ballistic testing on the bullets and recovered from the crime scenes. And so when examining bullets, you can figure out caliber and such pretty easily. There's general characteristics such as size, but you can also uh, make out the make and model, and even if it's the same gun from a combination of different characteristics. Um, There are some characteristics that are common to manufacturers, uh, things like that, but in specific to know this is the same gun that committed these seven murders. They are able to link the uh, lands and grooves, which are the bumps and valleys left when, you know, a barrel is created, when you're creating rifling in a barrel, you know, uh, like with a lathe. <laughs> uh, you know, the caliber, obviously, that helps, and, like, the rifling twist, uh, what direction is it? Is it a right or left-handed gun? You know, it depends oh, on the direction. Oh, I didn't know you could tell. Yeah, some, some yeah, if it's depending on the, the direction, it can, and the manufacturer, it can decide, like, oh, okay, this was a right or left-handed gun. Wow. Uh, but, I, you know, more to the point with the striations left on the bullets, you can see the lands and the grooves, um, and it, that's how they're mad. And that's how basically just they say, okay, this gun, this one gun, this specific gun, mm-hmm. you know, committed all these seven. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's that's, crazy. Yeah, interesting to know. I mean, all I know about ballistic testing is what I've seen on Law & Order. So, <laughs> um, pretty accurate. I'm sure they do their homework, don't right. they? Right. Um, in addition to the ballistic evidence that was recovered from the scene, there was also DNA evidence recovered from the victims, but testing at that time was not advanced enough. In the 80s, yeah. To, yeah, yes. to provide like a match, right? Um, we would see kind of like in the mid-90s to early 2000s kind of DNA being starting to be used as we kind of know it to be used now, mm-hmm. but DNA was collected nonetheless. I think before this a lot of times you could tell like if you had blood evidence you could exclude people based on blood type yeah but you weren't able to run dna in the way that you can now yeah and match it to a specific right person or family. so um i thought i'd just read the first seven victims that they have just so you kind of get an idea of i mean just the list seven people right that's a mm-hmm. lot and then the frequency in which it was happening so we had Deborah Jackson, like I said, she was 29 and found in August 1985. Henrietta Wright was 34 and found in August 1986. Barbara Ware was 23 and found in January 1987. Bernita Sparks was 26 and found in April 1987. Mary Lowe, also 26, November 1987. Lucretia Jefferson, 22, January of 1988. Alice, also known as Monique, Alexander, 18, uh, September 1988, 
And then that brings us to Anitra Washington, who was 30 years old in November 1988. And she's actually the only confirmed survivor of the Grim Sleeper. She was basically attacked by him and survived. Mm -hmm. So I'll go a little bit into her case because it's just really interesting. And uh, this is another example of the police are given all of this evidence and information and not a lot is done with it. So on November 20th, 1988, uh, Anitra Washington was walking to her friend's house and uh, she saw a Ford uh, Pinto and it was orange. And she says she remembers the exact car because she hadn't seen one in a while. Also, it's an orange car, but she hadn't seen a Ford Pinto in forever because right. they weren't manufacturing them at this time yeah anymore. they stopped in the eight, like 1980 yeah and, yeah because they, they recalls when you yeah. re-end them yeah mm-hmm. um the driver was a black man and she estimated him to be in about his 30s she said he was he looked like clean and kind of like nerdy almost um he offered to give her a ride and she said no i'm fine and he said something to her something to the effect of oh that's what's wrong with you black women you don't let people do nice things for you and she said that that Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready get 30, ready get 20 20, 20 ready get 20 20, ready get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Made her feel kind of bad. She's like, well, maybe he's just trying to be nice. And so she got in the car and said, you know, this is where I'm going. And he said, okay, cool. Well, first I need to go to pick something up from my uncle's house. And he took off in a different direction from the way she was supposed to be going. And she said it was fine at first. Like they made small talk, but... Mm -hmm. He wasn't super chatty. Um, And he went to his uncle's house or who he said was his uncle's house. And once he got back in the car, she noticed a difference in his behavior. Uh, He started talking really quietly. It was almost like he was talking to himself Mm -hmm. um, and not facing the passenger seat where she was sitting. So she turned to face him to be like, I'm sorry, what did you say? And that's when she realized that she was bleeding from her chest And so she, you know, in kind of like a freak out, tried to grab the handle of the door to get out of the car because she had no idea what was going on. Yeah. And he said, if you touch the handle again, I'll shoot you again. And that's when she realized that she was bleeding because she was shot and that the guy shot her. Um, And then he called her by, uh, he like confused her with somebody else. He called her by a different name, but she had been confused for that person before. Hmm. And she she remembered that and thought that that was weird. Like, I was confused for that girl, you know, last week or whatever. Yeah. Um, And then he proceeded to attack her and he beat her and he raped her. And she fought while well, she fought him off and she was going in and out of consciousness. Um, 
And she, that's when she was going in and out, she noticed the flash of a camera and realized that he was actually taking pictures of her. Oh. Um, and she said, you know, you need to take me to the hospital. I have children. If I die, it's on you. And he said, I can't take you to the hospital because I might get caught. And he basically pushed her out of the car a couple houses down from her friend's house and left her for dead. She managed to drag herself to her friend's house onto the front porch and knock on the door, bleeding that and having been attacked. As one strong woman. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, I can't imagine. She uh, actually gets to the front door and her friend had run out and wasn't home. And she was bleeding on the doorstep when her friend came home and her friend called 911. She's rushed into surgery and she survives. Um, miraculously because that sounds like a horrific attack yeah um and uh, the police working her case told her you know there's not a lot we can do for you uh we'll wait to see if the gun turns up because she provides them with a wealth of information that just sits unused uh she identifies the car she got into that uh orange ford pinto that's a mouthful for me to say yeah uh there were other victims who were reported last seen getting into an orange Ford Pinto. Oh my God. Uh, she remembers details about the attack, the fact that she had pictures taken, what he looked like, what he sounded like. Um, she provided enough detail about what he looked like that the police took a sketch, and that sat in evidence for 20 years. Never released. And was never released. Until then, wow. Um, most importantly, I feel, though, was that... The surgeons retrieved bullets from her that matched the other seven murders. It's just makes me very um, angry, really. really? I mean, if yeah. I'm going to be honest, I, I, I mean, they, they told her there's not much they can do when she gives them the make and model of the car. The, you know, uh, I mean, that matches other, I mean, even let's say they haven't put this together yet, okay. that, that it wasn't, you know, related to the other seven, you know, murders and with the same gun. But you have a living victim who gave you a sketch, gave you a make and model of a car. We've been registering cars since 1905. An orange Pinto, I'm, I mean, I know it's not digitized back then, but obviously we've been registering cars. So there's a record of somebody having a, an orange Pinto that you, you At go. At minimum, it's a lead. It's a lead. It's yeah. not much, but it's a lead. You have, you know, and a sketch. Why wouldn't you release that sketch to the public? That happens all the time. Right. You know? And yeah. I do it on the news. But it's just very angering. And actually, uh, regarding the gun, and this is something I just learned, um, We've been registering handguns technically in California since the 50s. Really? Now, it only applies to guns bought in stores. Okay. But, you know, so I'm sure, you know, it, it's it's a faint lead, all of these, but they're leads. And especially when you figured out that the bullets retrieved from her body, event, match. you know, match, why wouldn't that be the kick? I mean, it should have been investigated to begin with, right. you know, it, it's the very least. But they didn't do anything, like didn't even do the bare minimum. And it really makes me uh, angry. Me too. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's so and frustrating. And that poor woman, that poor woman, what she went through and she survived mm -hmm. only to have them brush it off. Right. I mean, how insulting. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's, it's again, this is why this case frustrates us so much. Yeah, it's, it gets us a little hot under the collar it here. It does. So. It really does. Um, so... After Anitra 
it seemed like there were no more murders happening. Um, and that would make sense. You know, maybe he was spooked. He found out she survived. Mm-hmm. Um, and however he found out and was like, well, you know what? That might be too close. She can identify me maybe if she saw me, you know? Um, and basically it just goes cold and it just, it just goes cold. That's essentially what happens. Mm-hmm. It goes, you know, there's nothing more to investigate as far as the police are concerned. If they get a break, that's great, but it, they're not really pursuing it. So right. in 2001, um, like I had kind of mentioned earlier, LAPD labs were ordered to dive into their backlog of cases and use advanced DNA testing techniques have gotten better. Let's try and close some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, they were testing DNA evidence from cases that were over 20 years old and seeing if oh, they wow. can make connections. Um, in 2005, so this went on for years. In 2005, there was a DNA match amongst three different things. So seven bodies found in the 80s that were tied together with ballistic evidence. Mm-hmm. Anitra Washington, who survived her attack in 1988, and two unsolved murders of a teenage girl and a woman in 2002 and 2003. So there was saliva evidence that mat- from all the victims that matched one person. So they knew that the DNA matched. They did not know who that DNA belonged to. Right. So now we have the seven that we knew about, Anitra Washington, who we knew matched with ballistic evidence, and now... 14 years later, two new murders. So I'll go into detail about the two victims really quick. Uh, The first was Princess Berthamu. She was a 15-year-old woman who was, or not woman, she was a teenager, a 15-year-old girl who was reported missing by her foster family in late December 2001 and was found in March 2002 in an alleyway in Inglewood. Uh, And then Valerie McCorvey in July 2003, so 15 months after Princess was found, she's a 35-year-old crossing guard from South Los Angeles, and she was actually found one block away from where a previous victim in 1987 was found. Hmm. So not only are these related, they're taking place in the same area, like down to the streets in the neighborhoods. Yeah. So with this multiple murder, one attempted murder connection, the police realized that this person who they assumed was dormant was actually killing again. And uh, they didn't have any leads on a suspect. They just had bodies piling up, basically. And even though there was all this evidence and, you know, all this information, basically, accessible, no announcement was made to the public. No, like, you know, do you know these people? Have you seen this person? Nothing. It was kept a secret and nothing was ever said about it. So it would make them look very, very bad. (laughs) It would look very, very bad. So even with these two new murders, they let the the cases went cold. The, The one in 2002 and 2003, they went cold. Now... In 2007, the body of Janisha Peters was found in an alley. She had been shot to death and covered with a plastic bag. Um, Her death barely registered in the news. Like most news outlets reported it as a stabbing Hmm. and and didn't even mention her name. Um, 
but bullets and DNA evidence left at the scene matched the previous murders and brought the overall death toll to 10. And point are they going to find that this is important to deal with? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So at this point, once they realize the connection, uh, the LAPD forms a secret task force called the 800 task force. And their explicit purpose was to just find who's responsible for these murders. Again, it wasn't announced to the public and they spent a year tracking down leads from 2007 until 2008 Hmm. Uh, investigating leads as far away as Texas, basically not with not much to go on again. Um, because this wasn't announced to the public, this meant that families weren't necessarily explicitly aware that their loved ones' cases were being investigated again. Mm-hmm. And actually, a lot of them didn't even know that the cases were related to other cases or connected to a serial killer. Some families reported when they were, you know, talking to the media so that they became a little bit suspicious when, you know, the police come knocking at their door for a murder that happened 20 years yeah. ago. Yeah. And that they initially took very little interest in. Yeah. Like, and why now 20 you years later, you want to know, you're asking questions. Yeah. It's like, the, you weren't interested in when it was a hot case. <laughs> right. Why now? So uh, the police kind of kept it, you know, under wraps for about a year. And then Christine Pelisek at the LA Weekly, she broke the story uh, and wrote a huge expose. Mm. We'll link it on our yeah. website because I really liked the article and it was really interesting to read. Um, and basically it was like, hey, by the way, LAPD knows of a serial killer and they have a secret task force that's trying to look for them. And they just haven't told any of you guys yet. So Good for her. Uh, she gave him the name, the Grim Sleeper, again, because it, the police believed at this time that there was a break in the crimes between Anitra and Princess. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, so it's like 1988 to 2002. Right. We don't, we're not seeing any activity. Unfortunately, the LA Weekly article was how a lot of the family members found out about um, the, con- the connection that they had to this task force. And, and a lot of times, some cases, they didn't even know that the cases were being reopened. So some did know, and they were like, it's strange that you're looking into this now. Some of them had, some people had no idea that their, fa- their family members' cases were being reopened. Yeah. Which I think is really atrocious. It is. I, Janisha Peters, the, so the 2007 victim's mom, she actually found out that her daughter's murder was connected to a string of serial murders from the 80s because she was watching the news, and it was just a news segment. And that's how you find out about your daughters. Right. That's... Uh, the daughter of... Mar- or the mother, I'm sorry, of Mary Lowe, who was killed in 1987, uh, she found out that her daughter's murder was connected to others in 2006 when the police just kind of happened to question her again and she was one of the ones like I don't understand why you're asking me these questions now yeah so understandably there was a lot of backlash from the public and then city officials kind of jumped on board uh city council members Mm -hmm. because the LAPD and then uh then mayor Antonio Villaragosa he they didn't notify the public at all of this active serial serial killer and I just think that you know 10 murders taking place over 20 years in a different neighborhood in LA 
Go 15 miles north. It would have been Go south into Orange County. News. It would, national news. I don't think it would have gone on this long. No. I think it would have been solved. I oh, think yeah. it would have been investigated and solved. Yeah, in absolutely. If it was Beverly Hills, if it was... Orange County. Orange Go County. Go south to, yeah. Orange County. Oh, my God. Yeah. This would not have happened. I, you absolutely know, I, I can't get over how just awful it must be to lose a child and then heal from that. And then 20 years later, find out these awful details. Yeah. And not even find out because, you know, somebody came to you and told you what was going on. Yeah. You're, you're watching the news. And you're, that's how you find out about your own daughter's You're getting death. questioned by the police. Yeah. About something that happened long. It's, yeah. Again. It's just like common decency is gone. It, that's how Quite it feels. Frankly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Again, treating, you know, that community in general that way. I mean, you would... I'm not a cop. I don't know standard operating procedure, but I would assume, let's say, you know, they actually did their, you know, investigated things like that. Okay, new leads come up. We need to come and talk to you. Let's and sit you down. New leads have come up, and your daughter is tied to a, you know, you would have some compassion and want to talk to them and let them know, not right. find out on the nightly news and or just might, come to your door I and mean, say, I hey. I think, again, you're losing this whole opportunity. Like maybe they know something. You know how they always tell you, Tell us any detail, no matter how small. Yeah. You may know something and not realize that it's important. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like that practice applied in this situation. Absolutely not. Yeah. They don't. So with increased public scrutiny, uh, the task force kicked it into overdrive, right? Now it's like, now we need to find somebody mm-hmm. who's responsible for this, and we need to stop this person. Uh, they decided to look into a new, at the time, investigative method, which was called the familial DNA search. Now... DNA evidence in 2005 tied the murders together but didn't match a person. So that means that their DNA was not in the system right. for whatever reason. So their idea, a familial DNA search means that they will expand the allowable basically number of DNA markers. So in order to have a match, you have to have a certain number of markers, right? Mm-hmm. They basically lower the standards to see if they can find a relative in the mm-hmm. DNA data in the DNA database. So if they get a match, that potentially means that that person might be related to them and they can draw a family tree from there. Right. Um and and that's going to be the way that the only way they're going to get a break in the case at this point because again, they have so little evidence to go on and some of the evidence is so old. At the time, only two states allowed this type of DNA search and that was California and Colorado. And in California, interestingly enough, uh, you know, it's known for being a very liberal state. Right. We live here. Um, Yeah. In terms of our criminal laws, sometimes they're a little bit backwards. Mm -hmm. Three strikes, for example, is not, you know, we we keep around laws that have maybe been proven not to be as effective as we wanted them to be. Right. But uh, we, again, in November, we just voted to keep the death penalty which it's on the ballot every year to be overturned blows my mind yeah yeah. to me anyway and we lost again to overturn it but um anyway in 2004 anyone arrested in California for a felony has their fingerprints and DNA entered into the quote expanded database so I said arrested not charged yeah arrested I would like to make that point yeah uh arrested for meaning I'm at a protest, I'm, you know... You get arrested. I get arrested mistakenly. Mm. And for a felony, I'm supposed to have my fingerprints and DNA taken. Right. 
Uh, the ACLU sued the state of California. And As they should. <laughs> I'm like, come on. Um, yeah. it, citing the DNA database expansion as unconstitutional, but they lost. Uh, they actually, the, the example that they used was a woman who was arrested for, I believe, protesting. Mm-hmm. She has her DNA sitting in a database like down in San Jose. And she was arrested and never charged for like criminal trespassing because she was arrested at a protest. Yeah. Um, and now her DNA sits there and it can be tested on a whim. Mm-hmm. And, you know, potentially a suspect pool is drawn from her DNA. Yeah. And all of a sudden, her family members. Yeah. And all of a sudden, yeah, her family members could be a suspect in something or, you know, just even under surveillance quickly. I mean, it's just all sorts of, you know, in my opinion, Fourth Amendment breaking. And, oh, definitely. You know. Yeah. Um, or at least, yeah, in my opinion. Um, yeah. uh, Jerry Brown, who is now our governor, uh, defended the expansion. And he likened it to fingerprint collection, which when I watched the interview where he said that, I was literally really? like Come watching on. it on my computer like, no, <laughs> that's on, not Jerry. the same, Jerry. Yeah, it's not um, the same. I can't, you know, we can be connected by DNA because we're related. Right. They're not going to connect you to any crimes I commit based on my fingerprint. Right. And I'm not even, to be honest, you know, if I'm just arrested, I, that I like having my fingerprints taken and right. put into a database. But at least my fingerprints are mine. You yes. can't have a familial match with fingerprints. Right. You know. I think it opens a lot of doors. It does. That can't be closed again. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time, uh, the DNA test was controversial, but it also needed approval, which Governor Brown signed off on. Uh, civil rights groups, again, are a, a lot of them are very against this method of DNA search because it's an invasion of privacy. There's issues with, you know, faulty matches, like false positives. Yeah, which happens a lot. Which happens. Yeah. But basically Um, it makes your relative, so it makes it so your relative's DNA could turn you into a suspect. Right. Like. Right. Uh, There's also the issue of just, you know, people talk about racism in in arrest rates, right? Racism Mm -hmm. in policing. So the expanded database is going to be reflective of who's been arrested, mm-hmm. which means that uh, people who populations who are arrested more are now overrepresented in that pool of DNA. Yeah, and actually, African American are represented more than white men. African American men are represented more than white men at a ratio of four to one, which, which means that now them and their family members are far more likely to be looked at as suspects. It's not like the entire population's DNA is here, mm-hmm. and now we're looking at everyone equally. Right, no. Because uh, so if we were, it should be, I mean, the uh, what, 13% is the, the black Something. population? Yeah, 13, 14%. In the United States. Again. Yeah, in the U.S. So, you know, how are they so over-represented? Right. Kind of tells a whole another story right there. Right, I just yeah. think that the expanded database overall is just so flawed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, this case is cited as being, you know, a very, like, pro-success story for this type of search. And on some ways it's great because it brings, you know, justice to all the victims. But in a perfect world where we can trust the police, where we can trust the prosecutors to only use these tools how they were meant to be used, but the point is we we don't live in that world. Right. Um, You know, so, and that's, you know, I don't know. We have plenty of cases where there's um, police and prosec- 
prosecutorial misconduct. And I just, again, I'll say it again, I don't think, um, you know, as, okay, in regards to, oh, this makes me mad, mandatory collection upon arrest. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't think that's okay. I think that's crazy. That is crazy that my DNA, if I get picked up, and, and this is a big reason why you shouldn't have your DNA collected upon arrest. You're not even charged, just upon arrest. And now my DNA is going to be in a database. In 2012, 62% of people arrested on suspicion of a felony in California were ultimately not convicted and almost 20% were never even charged. So 62% of people yeah. that were, uh, that potentially, now they have, they're yeah. in a database and can be pooled in a search. Right. You know, that that's, to me, like says it right there where you just, that's why you don't do that. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I think, you know, it's easy to look at it like, but we solved this really horrific crime. But, it, and you're like, yes, and that's great. But that wasn't the only way that it could have been solved. Yeah, in right? fact, if you guys did your, if you know. You can approach it from a different way. Yeah. The point is you guys let it sit for 20 years. Yeah. And that's pretty much the only recourse you had. Right. So, so uh, in 2010, though, the, uh, the, the familial search is conducted on the statewide database, the expanded database, and investigators get a partial DNA match to a man named Christopher Franklin, who had been previously uh, convicted of a felony weapons charge. And they used that match to draw a family tree of his male relatives. And they, I, so basically now they have a list of workable suspects for the first time in 20 years. Um, and they quickly zeroed in on the person who they thought was responsible. And after a DNA retrieval operation that reminds me of a Law & Order episode, <laughs> They, they found a match, and they have found the person who's responsible for these killings. But that's actually going to wrap us up for this week. So thank you for being part of our first episode. Uh, we really hope you enjoyed it. And we hope that you join us next week when we'll discuss the arrest and trial of the man known as the Grim Sleeper. Yeah, and please visit, visit our website, uh, misconductpodcast.com, uh, to leave your thoughts and comments on today's case. Any links to further reading and other content will be posted below that episode. Misconduct is available on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can also visit our Facebook and Instagram pages. Um, please visit the website for those links as well. As always, if you would like to email suggestions uh, for an upcoming episode, we would love to hear your thoughts. You can do so via the website. See you next time. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volur xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.